three, two, one. Welcome to the Mix Zone by Infront X Lab. On this podcast, we chat with sports and innovation leaders from around the globe, talking about everything from the newest technologies to major trends affecting our industry. For those of you who are joining us for the first time, we're Infront X Lab, the innovation branch of digital media company Infront X. We help sports and entertainment organizations gain the upper hand with innovation and bring them closer to cutting edge technologies, covering all sports related industries from data to content and everything in between. I'm Marav Severe, marketing manager at The Lab and host of this podcast. In this day and age, we're all fighting for eyeballs. And not just within the sports industry, we're battling the entertainment industry as well, trying to draw viewers away from Netflix, Disney Plus, and the likes. In an attempt to engage with our fans on our own platforms and draw them to watch our content. This means constantly producing new, exciting content and placing it in front of our fans, which isn't easy to begin with. Often this means constantly creating new video content, posting it to various social networks and OTT platforms, and keeping up with the analytics afterwards. When it comes to sharing content on social and OTT, each has its own benefits and drawbacks. For example, social networks are free and allow you to gain more exposure, but you lose some of your control as a creator. Meanwhile, OTT platforms draw fans to owned and operated properties, but are expensive to build. That's where our guest today fits in. Jan Umansky is the CEO and co-founder of Videoflow. Videoflow provides media companies with the tools to create their own video platforms and to offer fans live and on-demand interactive video experiences without having to code. This allows sports and media organizations to maintain end-to-end control of their own video channels without making use of video sharing sites such as YouTube and Vimeo. This means they maintain ownership of their content and do so at a lower cost. John, welcome to the Mix Zone. Hi, happy to be here. Well, we're happy to have you as well. And you know, before we start talking about video flow, let's get to know you. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, um, originally from Israel, um, I have uh, I've been in the broadcast uh, industry for most of my career, actually all of my career, because I started straight out of college. And I've been working mainly on live productions around the world uh, throughout the different positions I've been through. Uh, and that includes events like the Olympics, the Super Bowl, elections around the world. So that's, uh, that's uh, my career path before starting Video Flow. And then um, today I, uh, I stay in New York and uh, run Video Flow. So before we get into video flow and the technology and how it actually works, how did the idea for video flow come about and what did those early days of the company look like? Well, I think the idea for video flow uh, happened very organically, like I mentioned, because uh, my personal experience in the live broadcasting space, um, I think it was just about time where we, we all started seeing broadcasters and media groups in general starting to uh, kind of switch to uh, different models of delivering content, right? So that was the beginning of OTT. And before 
the dust settled, OTT was just a buzzword. Everybody was, were like excited by the word OTT. Everything was OTT, OTT, OTT. But in reality, I think not many of the content groups understood what it actually means because in their mind it was just, we switch the cable to stop being SDI and become being an ethernet cable. We move to the internet and basically that's it. But the reality was very, very different because it's not like just the technology is changing. It's also your audience are changing. It's the change of the way your viewers consume your content. It's the change of the devices that content is delivered on. So seeing this struggle happen for many, uh, for many broadcasters and media companies kind of led to the idea of, hey, why don't we do this uh, in a simple way? Why don't we abstract all these complexities and just let them do their thing, which is deliver amazing content to their viewers? And what year are we talking about right now? When did this all start? Well, the idea itself started in, uh, I believe, 2016. Mm. Yes, it was 2016, uh, but we officially launched and went on air in early 2018. So now, what does the company look like now, three years after the launch, going on four years after the launch, uh, end of 2021, beginning of 2022? We are a pretty lean team. Uh, we are a total of eight people. Um, we are very distributed. So uh, our product person is in Silicon Valley. We have developers in Israel, uh, Ukraine, and Rome. Um, we have sales that is in Connecticut, US. Um, you know, the, the pandemic kind of pushed us to be more distributed. Um, but we are very highly efficient uh, because, you know, based on our clients and the ability to scale, um, we're running a pretty tight operation <laughs> considering the fact that uh, we are globally distributed. Yeah, and how do you handle being globally distributed, not only in terms of getting the work done, but also as a company culture when you're such a tight-knit small group? Well, it's, it's important to be in touch with, uh, with everyone. You know, it's, um, I don't think hierarchy is the right model in those kind of scenarios. It's more, it's all flat, organized, everybody, uh, you know, Everyone helps everyone wherever they can, and communication is key. So we are talking with everyone almost on a daily basis. And if it's not me, it's uh, my co-founder. Um, you know, uh, communication, I guess, is the is the main thing. The other thing I would say that is important is uh, clarity and transparency, making sure that everybody know what you're building, where are you going? Because especially for developers, it's easy to get lost in the, you know, in the technicalities of things and always need to show like the big picture, the vision is, I think, what's important to share. So now let's talk a little bit more about the technology behind VideoFlow and what VideoFlow does. Your aim is to help media companies take full ownership of their video content by helping them build these OTT platforms. How does VideoFlow do that? Well, there is a few steps in, in, in the way to build an OTT platform. 
on video flow. But I guess the main thing is the abstraction of everything that doesn't require a contextual or artistic decision. And that's basically the idea. The platform itself is no code platform, meaning that the user doesn't have to type in any kind of code to make this entire thing work. So the way this works is we have three main steps. You bring your content into VideoFlow. It's by either uploading videos, just importing them from your existing storage, um, connecting to existing CDNs. Then you choose which videos or which content goes into your channel. And by the way, you can build many channels, right? It doesn't mean that every user has to have only one video channel, one OTT channel. And then you just style it. You basically define the look and feel to match your brand, right? So this is mm -hmm. one of our core things. We, we want to give you the whole control so you don't have to put it on a platform that essentially strips away your brand. In terms of, you know, a fan and a viewer who's watching, they don't see the difference between someone who has created their OTT platform via video flow rather than some expensive OTT platform that was built over a long period of time. That's true. Furthermore, maybe maybe they will experience will they will have a better experience through video flow given the recent uh, past of the big OTT platforms. I will not mention names. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave those out of this conversation. And now, now, John, you've also coined this term of micro bundling. What is this concept? Right. Well, the, the concept itself means that different pieces of content that you own as a media brand could work better for you if you would be able to serve them to, uh, through different channels. So the best example would be if I have an interview with a football player, right? Mm -hmm. Traditionally, if I would like to build an OTT channel and I would have to spend a lot of money in developing it, for example, right? I would focus on one offering that would be the best offering I can possibly give that targets the biggest amount of audiences that I could possibly get, right? Because I just have one platform. I don't have money to prototype test or deploy multiple platforms, right? Multiple OTT channels. What we're saying is if you stripped away the high cost and you strip away the time to market that it takes to launch an OTT platform, and you basically launch multiple platforms that bundle content in different ways. So for example, you have an OTT channel that is dedicated to a specific player that contains all their games and interviews. And then you have another OTT channel that is dedicated to a specific team that contains all the players. You could build those offerings and basically give them and offer them, sorry, to the end user and that will essentially create a higher conversion because people can get exactly what they want instead of paying for one platform and get a fraction of the content this platform has to offer. So everybody goes, wins, really. This goes hand in hand with this trend of personalizing content per fan and not per fan group. Exactly. That's, so no that's right. A couple follow-up questions on what you just said. So first of all, you're talking about these different channels uh, that can each target a different fan based on what he or she wants to view and who they want to view. Now, how many channels can one media company or one sports organization have via video flow? And how are they portrayed to the viewer? You mentioned, you know, targeting them with just one specific channel. So 
in terms of amount of channel, really the, the number in, in theory is infinite, right? So it's all cloud-based and it can scale very, very quickly. That's one of the, that's one of the things that we do. To, to the other question of how do they get to the viewers? Well, this is something that is really depending on the brand itself, right? We mm -hmm. still, we are not going against social media, for example, for those kind of purposes. Social media is a great mechanism to promote your content, right? Its promotional capabilities are, of course, uh, give them a huge advantage. The marketing and branding capabilities, or should I say the retainer of the branding, this is where there are some flaws in that model, in the social media model. So I think combination of both is the, the winning formula here. Now you also talked about time to market and you advertise that it takes only a few minutes to create an OTT channel. Is it really just a few minutes? You, you, you mentioned just customizing it to your brand, but how long can it take for someone to build this OTT platform and launch it to a fan, say after an interview was conducted and they want to publish this video? Can they get it to the fans really in a matter of minutes? Well, they could really, they, I think that the slowest part of this entire process is always getting the content in. If you have mm -hmm. the content and we normally assume that the media brand that own content will have it, then getting into the fan is really just a matter of selecting which videos go into the channel and then applying the brand, which is colors, logos, and so on. Of course, you can spend hours in fine-tuning it, but if you would come to me now and say, hey, I have a bunch of videos and I need to launch something so my viewers can see it, yeah, it would take a few minutes to be live. And now in terms of how you help your customers, what do you see as the biggest challenge that you help your customers overcome? The, I think the direct-to-consumer challenge that many of content owners are uh, struggling with today uh, yeah that that would be the main one basically groups uh, that have a lot of content and basically they don't know how uh, to leverage it better how to make this content work for them right something that could be monetized is not because they don't have the capability to build a paywall for example. Mm -hmm. So many people opt out for something very quick, right? Let's put it on YouTube and allow advertising. But that's not really making money unless you're an individual creator that don't need to split the revenue and pay salaries and you get millions of, on top of millions of views every month. Right? So, so, so there has to be a better way. Mm -hmm. So if we're talking about monetization, what are these better ways? What are some of the creative opportunities that you've seen your clients pursue using VideoFlow? Well, from a monetization standpoint, really what we are doing is we're allowing the, the client to choose what monetization model they want to use. And today what we support is uh, the three standard monetization models, which is SVOD, TVOD, and AVOD, subscription, transactional, and uh, ad-driven. But the way this works, sorry, is that they would choose, and of course they can mix and match. They could say, hey, here is a content with the tag, uh, I don't know, highlights, and it's going to be free or ad-driven, while some other content that contains a tag live 
is going to be pay-per-view and it's going to cost X amount of money. Now, the, to your other question about what are the creative ways in which uh, customers use this, uh, that would be probably the targeting of the audience, right? So mm-hmm. content that earlier were not even monetizable, I will give you an example, uh, NTT in Japan, creating channels for uh, youth sports where it's mainly targeting families and friends, right? Mm-hmm. And they, they basically creating monetization, whether it's ad-driven, subscription-driven, to, for, for families to essentially watch content of their kids playing, which is very, very relevant, especially because of all the lockdowns and all the situation that is happening where you cannot maybe attend the game in person. So now you mentioned uh, NTT and we're talking about um, providing families access to watch uh, their loved ones. So when we're talking about clients, you know, providing it for families and youth sports are much smaller organizations. So who is your target client base? Is it these big organizations who we're used to seeing all over the world? Is it the smaller ones? Is it everyone in between? Our target client is uh, anyone between an SMB and an enterprise uh, brand, essentially. What, what I usually say when I do demos, uh, sales demos is, if you, have, if you own content that you believe has value, you should be monetizing it. And we see it all the time. There is a ton of articles coming up every day about the creator economy and how people basically reclaim ownership of their content because suddenly they realize that their content is the economic driver of so many platforms and they basically see a fraction of the cost. So if you are a company that have, have content and it can be a, yoga, a boutique yoga studio or you're a big broadcaster, you could uh, leverage video flow and you can leverage it maybe for different, uh, for different uses. Video flow could be used for prototyping instead of waiting to see your OTT channel in one year after paying millions of dollars for development and finding out that it's not what you expected. Or if you are just owning, you know, a few pieces of content that you want to monetize, everyone in between can use video flow. So if we're talking about revenue, how much have you seen some of your clients really be able to achieve in terms of revenue using video flow? Well, it, it really varies. Um, again, we, so one of the things that we're doing is the, the whole pricing model is very, very transparent. Um, and we allow our clients to set up their price completely. So, for example, you know, like if there is a, some pr- production that, that happens for family and friends, nobody there is really trying to make money from, from, from those families. They just want to watch mm-hmm. their loved ones, right? Uh, so they can set up the price. They choose to set up the price, you know, b- by themselves. So we've seen, you know, channels that go from a few hundreds of dollars in revenue to a few tens of thousands, um, really depending on the content. Now, in terms of using video flow, what is your business model? Because obviously we are talking about different organizations and different sizes with different budgets. So how do you work with these different organizations in terms of your business model? That's a very good question. (laughs) Well, um, 
let's start with the smaller groups. So the smaller groups uh, are easier to deal with because this is what we call as self onboarding, right? This is an mm -hmm. inbound traffic. Let's say somebody is interested in using VideoFlow. They can sign up, they can uh, put in the credit card and basically now they're running. The model itself is you pay for uh, the channel Mm -hmm. And then you pay for the, uh, so that's a, the, paying for the channel is a fixed price. And then on top of that, you pay for bandwidth, how much content was viewed. Um, and then the unique part of this is if you introduce a paywall, then you will obviously pay less for bandwidth because now you have a natural filter there, right? You have only mm -hmm. those people who decide to pay you are going to, uh, watch the content, which means we get less money for bandwidth. So we switch to a revenue share model. Again, very fair. So then if the client is selling, we are sharing the revenue instead of just taking their money and they are not making any profit. So that's for smaller groups. For bigger enterprises, it's always uh, uh, you know, a project. So we have the standard stuff, a quote, we, you know, we go after big, big events like, I don't know, Olympics or something. And then, we, yeah, it's, it's always a dedicated project and we need to scope out and then handle. Now, in terms of you know, fan experiences, you also offer real-time interactions between fans uh, via social media on your platforms. How does that work and come into play when you're obviously when you're setting it up with what the fan sees? How does that all experience work? Right. So, yeah, again, this is also like a part of, of the, the platform itself where you don't need to code, obviously. It's more about setting, um, setting the experience. So basically, you start with a template. So you already have something to work with. And then what you do is you would choose essentially what features you want to have within your interactive experience. That could be, for example, chat or a social media feed. Uh, or some interactive data feed that needs to come, uh, interactive timelines, for example, and so on. Now, the, the difference with interactivity that we introduce also is by introducing an open framework that's called VideoFlow Framework. And this framework allows, actually, this is where code comes in. So it is outside the platform, allowing developers essentially build their own interactions and deploy them on video flow so the mm -hmm. way we see this in the future is um, imagine a marketplace of interactions people that build all kinds of interactions whether it's gaming betting or anything in between and other clients can basically take those interactions and bring them into their uh, experiences now, how have changing fan preferences, because our fans are changing daily based on what they want to see, how they want to see it, how they want to interact with content, you know, how has that affected your offerings and the ways in which you continue to develop video flow? That's a great question. I mean, I think that since the, we, we saw this even before the pandemic, of course, but since the pandemic started, I believe that, you know, it accelerated things, especially it accelerated the direct-to-consumer um, uh, experience. And the reason for that is many brands that didn't have 
any kind of broadcast capabilities suddenly found themselves without a way to reach their audiences, right? Mm -hmm. So obviously the only way to go is direct to consumer. Because if you are a broadcaster that was in the market for 50 years, right? It's very hard to turn off your channels and say, well, from now on, I'm going to be OTT direct to consumer and everything else is done. You know, it, it will not happen. It's a transition that will take decades. Mm -hmm. But if you never had any infrastructure before, right? And suddenly you don't, you, you cannot reach your audiences. Then you obviously will be looking for additional experiences that you can provide. Um, and of course, the preference of the audiences changed as well because audiences demand more content because they had more time, lockdowns. Um, and it doesn't mean they had more money. So it doesn't mean they had more games also with so many leagues that you know took a break because of COVID at the beginning. Right. So there was no there was no content to begin mm -hmm. with there was no uh, uh, additional money for people and but there was a lot of time on their hands so mm -hmm. really uh, inter an interesting thing we saw uh, through I, I cannot mention the client but uh, historic content replays mm -hmm. became something very very interesting and suddenly they said hey we are not monetizing historic games that people might miss and actually it worked because they got great, great feedback by, by creating historic, uh, by sorry, streaming historic events uh, through a dedicated platform. Now, the little bit of a sense of nostalgia always gets people going. Yeah, exactly. You know, if we take a look at the industry as a whole and putting nostalgia aside, take a look to the future, what trends have you recognized in sports content production that will affect how we both deliver and consume sports in the future? Um, well, th there, is, there is a few. Um, first of all is, I think, the, the way we treat content has changed, right? So mm -hmm. what we call content today was not something that was called content in the past. So the best example is, for example, if you have famous athletes that, for example, post on social media, um, it used to be one post on Facebook a few years ago. Then it became a few photos on Instagram, right? Now, everyone producing video and they're becoming really good at it. And of course, content owners are looking at this as, hey, this is now a valid piece of content that viewers can watch. So obviously, this is another monetization opportunity. Um, so I think one of the trends that is happening is the sources. You know, the, the, the amount of sources content is coming from is growing exponentially, really. Content now can come from individual players. Content come from uh, teams that produce their own content through somebody who is straight out of college started shooting additional content. Uh, content is produced through automated cameras and AI uh, with companies like Pixelot, for example, right? And then content is also produced by the content owners. So this amount of content that we have definitely requires some way to monetize and deliver this content to the viewers. And so, so yeah. So what's next for video flow? If we take these trends into consideration, we take fan preferences into consideration, what's next for the company? Next for the company is, well, what we really 
doing these days is growth, right? We we already been in the market for a few years. We've uh, proven the product uh, market fit, and we had some amazing projects that we were very fortunate to be a part of. Now it's time to essentially grow, going after all these medium and big groups to essentially help them help them to get their content to their viewers. And I think part of this is not just growth in terms of investment and throw money at it. Part of it, a big part of it is also education and showing that there are other ways, better ways to monetize your content. Well, it's definitely fascinating, John. And before we let you go, we are going to hit you with our rapid fire questions. Uh, Just a couple of questions and uh, as quick as you can. You ready for them? Uh, hang on, give me a second. <laughs> okay, yeah, I'm ready. All right, well, first of all, how do you define innovation? Oh, wow, okay. Uh, differentiation and positioning, I would say. Positioning in the market. And if you could go back and do one thing differently, do it better, what would it be? Deploy faster, I think. Go to the audience faster and don't worry about mistakes that might come up. And what piece of advice would you give your younger self at the start of your journey? Oh, wow. Buy Bitcoin. (laughs) (laughs) That simple. Buy Um, Bitcoin as soon as it comes out. (laughs) Exactly. Um, I I would say probably, again, um, I would say just move to move faster and less careful at the beginning i think is the right way to go instead of focusing on you know being perfect and releasing everything only when it's 100% ready who was or still is your tech role model ooh that's a good question um i would say that probably is one of our mentors his name is andre yurski I don't know if you ever heard this name. He's a, I admit I have not. He is a Russian Israeli who now lives in the US. And we met him uh, through the accelerator program that we've been uh, selected for in Silicon Valley. Um, he is, by a lack of better description, the inventor of the podcast. <laughs> and <laughs> we owe him yeah. a lot. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, no, he's, he's just a great person. And I really admire the, the balance that he has between, you know, professional work and the way he lives his life. And this is something to really strive for. Um, and yeah, I think he's a great example, great living example. Well, it's definitely a name I'm going to Google as soon as uh, we finish our recording. But John, last but not least, what technology has had the biggest impact on you? I would say from the recent probably years that would be blockchain. Uh, Why is that? I'm a big, I'm a big believer in in the blockchain technology and the uh, and decentralization. Uh, I think it can affect many 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 aspects uh, in uh, in our daily lives. I also see the blockchain being part of what we are building in the future as well. Um, again. We are focused around decentralization in our own way, where we want to give the content owners, again, their content rights back, right? And decentralization really is feeling very natural and just a part of this entire ecosystem. And it's something that's going to happen. Um, And, you know, 
we can talk about the blockchain and how it relates to video and distribution for a very long time. So I'm not going to do it now. <laughs> that could be a very but, long podcast. <laughs> exactly, exactly right. But I we'll save it that, for another yeah, day. Yeah, I think that it's just something that is, you know, it's here, it's not going to go away and it's going to change our life fundamentally. Well, John, I had a great time chatting with you today and thank you so much for joining us on The Mix Zone. Yeah, me too. Thank you so much. And if our listeners want to reach out to you anywhere, can they do that? Yeah, they can reach me at jan at videoflow.io. Fantastic. Well, John, thank you so much for being with us. Have a good rest of your day. Thank you very much, Merav. It was great. That wraps up this episode of The Mix Zone by Infant X Lab. You can follow us on LinkedIn and be in touch with our team for more information about sports tech solutions. Just shoot us an email at lab at We'll see you next time.